You are listening to Down Home. Episode 9, Back in the Day. In this episode, we catch up with an old high school friend, Lindsay Sharp, and talk about his experience of being a white person living in the predominantly black neighborhood of the north end of Halifax. Welcome to Down Home, the Nova Scotian experience from two black men. Uh, this, uh, this week, of course, we have Jay Jones. What's as happening? always, as always. And our guest this week is Lindsay Sharp, an old high school friend of ours, to add his voice to our conversation about down home. Lindsay, how you doing? Doing great, guys. Great honor for having me. Thank you very much. Yeah, awesome. man. Thanks for coming, brother. So let's jump right in. Um, we really want you to talk about uh, your experiences on uh, living in the north end of Halifax back in the 80s. For sure. Yeah. I mean, I'll lay out, I guess, a bit of background in terms of how I ended up in Halifax because that all plays a role, of course. Um, I first actually ever came to Halifax um, the March break before I moved down the following September of my grade nine year. So it would have been when I was in grade eight here in Toronto at the time, um, which junior high ends in grade eight, whereas we know Nova Scotia goes through to grade nine. So I had the real nice bonus of getting the double hitter in terms of being the top of the school, which was kind of cool. But, um, but admittedly, you know, knew very little about Halifax except for a quick little three-day trip in March break where, you know, beautiful looking city, there's the ocean, you get lost because it's on all sides and it doesn't make sense to a young young guy from Toronto. Every The water was always to the south sort of, sort of trick, right? Yeah. And... You know, I had grown up in Toronto in a quite a diverse community, you know, um, lots of people of color, uh, of, you know, all heritages and, you know, you, quite frankly, even the white people, most of them were Portuguese, Greek or Italian. And, you know, then obviously there's some Caucasian uh, people want, uh, sprinkled all throughout in there, you know, with history going back to the, the Brits largely. Um, so, I mean, I think for me, that was the first thing that was really quite an experience coming to Halifax, um, particularly because though I was living on Brunswick Street in the North End, I was going to school um, at Gorsburg St. Francis, deep, deep in the South End, Right. Yeah. which I had no perspective of the North End and South End at all until that was happening. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so I walked into my junior high classroom and all of a sudden it was like, holy crap everybody's white um literally one guy who we know quite well mark manuel was the only guy in my class right who was yeah, black yeah, guy. Yeah. and yeah. it took me a couple of weeks to piece it all together but what i then quickly figured out is that you know because it was weird because when you actually show up at goresburg st francis there are lots of different you know people like in terms of white and black but then over the course of the week, I figured out, holy crap, you know, Mark is the only black guy in regular programming. Everyone else is what I came to learn called the bridge class. Right. They were actually all being bussed in largely from the North End where I lived. Right. You know, so I found that to be a really interesting kind of weird dynamic where all of a sudden here I go from being in a school where I'm probably one of the very few people in class who even grandparents were born in Canada. Mm-hmm. to a school where everybody's great-grandparents, you know, black, white, or otherwise, were born in Canada. But there's only one person of color in the whole class, which was staggering to me, right? And mm-hmm. as you can imagine, I then very quickly kind of learned how Halifax had become incredibly delineated over the years. Mm-hmm. Um, 
largely based on, on race. Obviously, class plays a factor in that, which is, you know, partly how we ended up living in the North End. It was what we could afford at the time, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I mean, that early, that early, that early trip, that first year um, was really transformative. I mean, it totally changed my outlook on Canada. You know, I had always been raised in Toronto and this very multicultural community that taught you that, you know, equality and all these things were always a struggle, obviously. But you had a sense of some of that having been achieved and some levels of equality starting to be there. Um, And so that was quite a stark reality all of a sudden coming to Nova Scotia and realizing what was going on Um, still, you know. 1400 so like, kilometers away right yeah so like the um like toronto I, like is is um epitome of that multicultural mosaic and then you come to like you like nova scotia where we grew up it's really not like that is it you're you're you're, you're very right yeah yeah uh yeah i mean the the just the clear geographic distinction certainly back then i mean i think it has improved moderately since but um the delineations in terms of where people of color would be or would not be was, I mean, quite striking for me coming from where I had come from. Now, admittedly, if I had grown up in North Toronto on the bridal path, maybe this wouldn't be such a jarring phenomenon. <laughs> you know, that's, you know, it's pretty lily white up that way too. But um, yeah. So, and then interestingly, then I came back after that year and, and did grade 10 back here in a year in high school in Toronto. Okay. Um, and it was about halfway through the year and the English teacher says to the whole class, he says, you know, everyone, everyone in the class whose grandparents were born in Canada, put up your hand. And it's literally me and the teacher. And they were the only people in the classroom, who, you know, because everyone else's families had were only second. The kids were only second generation. It was quite incredible. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, yeah. Um, and so what I would say about I me, mean, what I, I, I don't know how much I really learned that first year there about the history of no I mean I learned some I certainly learned about Africville for the first time which is also just a embarrassment for our Canadian education system that I had made it to grade nine in my life without having ever heard of that story um, along those same lines taking this five years later I actually only ever learned about the migrations of the Maroons to Nova Scotia from Jamaica when I was literally at the London Book Fair reading a book published about Jamaica by a British publisher. Mm-hmm. I mean, I had been through two years of high school and a year of junior high in Nova Scotia and still didn't know it at that point, which is, again, I think, you know, someone should be taken to task in the Nova Scotia Bureau of Education for not having that part of the core curriculum. You know, I mean, it was it was embarrassing, quite frankly, yeah, um, yeah. to not know that about my own province until I, in a foreign country, <laughs> reading a book about a foreign country. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was pretty crazy. Yeah. Um so, and 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 I like it for me, you know, I felt like I spent a lot of that grade nine year talking to a bunch of white kids at that school going, you know, what the hell are you saying? You can't say those things and do those things like what weird, you know, I hate to say backwoods, but it felt a little bit, you know, like it was like, this is some weird shit, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Yeah, um, yeah. Then I would say when I came back for grade 11 um, and we moved to Creighton Street, you know, um, half a block from Creighton and Garish, which is very real, you know, um, Brunswick Street, there was some stuff going on for sure. I learned a lot of stuff. Uh, you learn a lot more living in Creighton and Garish, right? I mean, it's uh, <laughs> it's an area, you know, it's not a joke, right? There's a, you you grow up quick and yeah. uh, you get to know the people in the neighborhood really fast, you hope, yeah. because if you don't, things are 
probably not going to go so smooth sometimes, right? Yeah. Um, but I think going to when we, when I started going to QE, and obviously I already knew some people. Most of those were people I knew. I knew a few people from the north end, but because I'd gone to school in the south end, most of the people I knew were guys who had grown up there. And it was that mixing of the north end and the south end at QE that I thought really, really started to change my understanding of the dynamics gave me a whole new appreciation. And I think, you know, I, as I got older, I started to realize that the fact I'm aware of racism doesn't mean that I have any concept of what it means to experience it and things like that. Like I, I feel like QE really quickly taught you those differentiations, which was uh, quite an experience. I have to say, I mean, that whole concept of coming in different doors, even not that people had to, but, but it happened. Well, yeah. you know, yeah. like there was a weird, there was almost a weird expectation, even if it wasn't an enforced regulation. You know what I mean? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think, I think, I think it happens in a subconscious way always, you know, it's like, it's uh, what's built into our patterns of thought. And, and, and then you see that division, knowing where you come from and knowing where they may come from, that, that ends up playing a factor in those things. Yeah, and it, it, it felt like it was interesting, you know, because it would have been over, I mean, different for you guys who were there for also for grade 10, but over the span of the three, the two years I was there, it did feel like towards the end of grade 12, things had started to break down a little bit more in that regard. You know, you tend to have a little bit more people on both sides of the building sort of thing, but it was still mm. pretty, pretty strong by the time we left, was my, my feeling too. Yeah. Um, and I, I should add, you know, not just, talking about Halifax along lines of uh, racial divide and stuff like that too, that I did very, very quickly uh, learn the pace and hospitality of Nova Scotia too, uh, the graciousness Mm -hmm. of individuals, you know, um, the willingness to allow someone in when you're driving or walking, you know, which for me growing up in Toronto was a completely foreign concept, you know, (laughs) Um, you know, you went where you were going, no matter who was in your way sort of thing. So, you know, that was also like, you know, at 13, to have that total change up of atmosphere in terms of the dynamics of how people interact was pretty cool, man. Um, mm-hmm. And it that was incredibly formative as I started traveling around the country more and stuff like that, in terms of how I interact with other people, and I suspect, and therefore receive too. Mm-hmm. So um, <clears throat> I think I lost contact with you after grade 12, probably, probably most likely. Uh, what was life like after high school? What, what, how did you end up uh, in, in uh, Toronto, back in Toronto? Well, the, the, there was still a trunk after high school where I was still in the city. And that was my kind of my third living setup where I was up on Maynard um, to the south side of, uh, was it Cornwallis, right? With all the stores right. and stuff like that. Yeah. 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 Um, which was kind of funny, right? Because that two and a half blocks from my dad's house on Creighton to where we all lived, um, just down the street from David Ida Coyote on Maynard Street, um, was very different, you know, like to say the least. It's incredible what a difference two blocks can make. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that, like, then I was an adult living in the North End in the community. I still worked for my dad down on, like, we had the office down on Creighton Street by that point and stuff like that. So that was a whole different, you know, kind of experience growing up as an adult in that community, too, and getting, and like, you know, by then I knew a lot of people and stuff like that. Um, and then I ended up meeting my now wife one day and, uh, King, you know, through mutual friends, she was going to King's college at the time. And, uh, next thing I knew, I found myself back here in Toronto. So there I was. Yeah. 
Yeah, interesting. When was hey. the last time you were uh, in Halifax? Yeah, I was going to say, and I sadly don't get back any, like, you know, the first two years I was away, I think I was back five times in that two years. And it just seems like as time goes on, the gaps between when you can get home have been longer and longer. But I was really lucky that I got home last January for my dad's 80th birthday, right before oh, COVID wow. shut the world down, which was pretty cool. Yeah. All my relatives from PEI, all my dad's side of the family came over and my brother, like all my, I have a a brother and then I have a half brother and sister um, that my dad had later on. Uh, You guys probably even would have remembered my brother Jesse was like a baby when we were in high school. I would show up on Spring Garden Road and stuff with him in his trailer and weird stuff like that. um, (laughs) Maybe, I don't remember. One thing I do remember though is, um, (laughs) this is totally off topic, but it was was cool. Um, Derek and I, used to often drink in your backyard when you weren't even around. <laughs> I think you had only mentioned that to me in the very recent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I, and, I know and we did that fo- for school dances a couple times. Before yeah, we did. Too, and yeah. one day we were like, let's go see if Lindsay's home. And you weren't home. And so we just stayed in your backyard drinking. And then your father came out. And I actually believe we were like, oh, we were supposed to meet Lindsay. And he's like, oh, yeah, cool. And then he sat down and had a beer with us, I think. Yeah, it was cool. Yeah, or, yeah. or something, or something. Yeah, or something. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. You know, this. You know, a, a child may be watching. No, I'm kidding. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> True story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, so that was great. I mean, I was really happy to get home. Uh, I got, I got, I, I spent literally the most time I have ever spent in Dartmouth in my whole life because I crashed at the buddy's place for two nights. So it was weird, like to. To have lived in Nova Scotia for that long and to have probably spent more in that two days in Dartmouth than I had cumulatively over the other 15 years. or <laughs> So it was pretty crazy. But, I'm, but sure was, was, I'm sure it was an adventure. Time. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun. It was, it was good to be back. An adventure in Dartmouth. Adventure yeah. in Dartmouth. <laughs> and my daughter is all over me. So as soon as COVID, like, it turns out, and I didn't even realize this until about six months ago when she started giving me a hard time, that she's actually never even been to Nova Scotia, which is really uh, quite pathetic. Oh, so wow. I got to sort that out pretty soon. Yeah, yeah. I've had my son there twice, so she's not very happy with me at the moment. Yeah. <laughs> um, so um, I want to know your thoughts like uh, on the role, um, if you've been following it, uh, the role of sy- systemic racism in the Mi'kmaq uh, fishing rights dispute in Nova Scotia this summer have you been following that at all yeah oh most certainly yeah um yeah yeah I mean I'm pretty lucky in that you know because of um I work in the book distribution industry um Mm -hmm. and my father has been working in book sales or publishing for you know going on 50 years at this point I guess um so I was very lucky that he's done a lot of stuff on um, indigenous uh, sovereignty issues, you know, coast to coast. But like he, he did a lot of he did a lot of stuff out of Nova Scotia pretty early on, um, before it was happening. I would say, and he's actually done a fair bit of stuff on fishing in different capacities too. Usually, as it relates to mass commercial fishing and its effects on the environment and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I mean, I that to me, instant was one of the clearest examples of kind of. Uh, allowed violence that I think you you've seen in modern history I mean certainly in Canada to that scale um I think the fact that it was followed up by allowing a bunch of weird Vikings to invade the 
supposed capital of the freest country in the world um, some months later speaks to the fact that maybe these things are a little more out of hand than we really like to give credence to, which is very problematic. Um, yeah, I, I, I found the whole incident there lays pretty bare how far we have to go, um, you know, and it's easy to say in Nova Scotia, but that scenario could play out anywhere in Canada where there's that sort of conflict between an Indigenous community and, um, you know, what consider themselves, you know, kind of the OG white guys or whatever they are, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but, I mean, they burned buildings down and yeah. trucks down and there was no intervention on behalf of the RCMP, which my understanding is that's literally their role to play is to do those sort of things. And, you know, I realize now, however many months later, they've started to make some arrests and stuff. But to me, that's not enough. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, I it's mind blowing that that happened in the year 2020 in Canada would be my my distilled answer. (laughs) It's it's interesting, though, the role that um, the Canadian media has played in that situation. Like, um, you know, I, I actually when it first started to happen, I actually had to search for the news story. And when I found it it was like one or two stories, uh, very short to the point, um, no editorial on it at all. And, you know, but front page is all the the American uh, election stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's almost to say, look at us, we're, you know, nothing's going on here in Canada. But, you know, down in our, literally in our backyard, there's a, a situation that, in, in my, my opinion, is, is dire, you know? Yeah, indeed. Yeah. And I mean, my, my recollection of the timeline is that that had all unfolded not too long after uh, the shit had really hit the fan with Black Lives Matter in the States, right? Exactly. After George Floyd and then... I unfortunately forget the other gentleman's name who got shot in front of his kids and is paralyzed. And that whole, that had all unfolded and i think we do tend to sit up here in canada quite righteously about our past which ties back to my point about learning so much when i moved to nova scotia about our actual past as canadians as it relates to and being oppressors you know um Mm. and yeah i mean so here we sit and going you know geez look at them down there and they can't you know this is ridiculous how could they behave these ways and all like the all the kind of higher than now stuff that I find we do sometimes in Canada, you know, because we were the other side of the Underground Railroad, as if then there was no slavery in Canada, which is a myth entirely, of course. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah, yeah. But then this happens, and and the reaction for so many people I found wasn't as equal to how offended they were by what had been happening, and obviously continues to happen every minute of every day in the states, right? And it's like, mm-hmm. no, no, this is the same exact set of systems that lead to a certain group of people being allowed to be treated that way without any help or assistance protection from the state, right? Which yeah. is appalling to me. Yeah, yeah it, um, it's, it is. It's very appalling. It's disgusting. Yeah. Just the simple fact that you couldn't really find the story. And, uh, you know, it's what we sometimes become accustomed to in Canada is just the is that history, you know, because we're so multicultural. And like you said, Lindsay, we're the, you know, we're, we were freedom at the end of the underground railroad, but um, you know, 
not to sound redundant, but those things have, uh, you know, definitely still hold their place. But uh, the sense of the, the, you know, the sensation of American media when it comes to their racism, their racism and their politics seems to get a lot more um, compassion, to be honest with you. For sure. Oh, yeah. Um, yeah. And I mean, I think that that has a lot to do with the complexities of Indigenous sovereignty issues, right? I mean, um, it's an ongoing, incredibly problematic thing from a bureaucratic standpoint. I mean, obviously, from a human rights standpoint, it's atrocious. I mean, and the fact that we continue to have conversations about trying to develop the tar sands when I can't even give you the statistic of number of reserves don't have drinking water, right? Mm-hmm. Um is staggering you know um and we're talking amounts of money in many situations here that are so paltry compared to what we spend you know building new navy ships and all these sort of things uh you got to take care of your own people first before you start i would argue you know worrying about building navy ships and stuff like that but you know True. who am i am some guy in a basement in toronto here so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um also, but like you, you, you know, uh, it sounds like over your life and over your growth, you said you've been through many different sort of scenarios when it comes to race, you know, being in Toronto, then coming back home, um, you know, and your father, obviously, like you said, he was a little bit of head of his time bringing um, a lot of the social activism that was going on to the table. And um, I understand he had a role in um, publishing a book about uh, Viola Desmond. Can you talk a little bit about that? I can for sure. Yeah. It was actually really interesting in getting ready to chat with you guys. I talked to my dad a few times over the last couple of days, uh, just trying to remember things a little more clearly and stuff like that. And uh, that's, always an easy conversation because if you get my dad rolling you can just kind of he'll go and you, you know so i talked to him today when i was out for my walk actually um and it was interesting i mean in doing a bit of research to remind myself um though my dad moved down there in the night like in the, where were we late 80s and i think he first published in nova scotia in like 91 it wasn't until I think it was actually more than 10 years later before he did his first book talking about anything to do with, you know, African Canadians in Nova Scotia. Um, he had done a fair bit of stuff on in indigenous stuff. Like one of the very first books he published was actually about the Donald Marshall inquiry that oh, they, they wow. had just done on his false imprisonment and all that craziness. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then uh, he did a book, the first book he actually did, which I thought was really interesting. And I did have an interesting chat with him about this today. Um, was a book called um, African Canadian uh, or, or African Canadian Nova Scotian Mi'kmaq relations. So it was about how the Mi'kmaq and Black communities in Nova Scotia had interacted over the years. And, you know, it was an interesting book. I mean, it's problematic in some ways because I think both communities have at different times probably done things they're not particularly proud of, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and then, so it was probably... 10 or so years after that and he had done a few things and um my dad over the years had ended up having like just tons and tons and tons of conversations with rocky jones right and they became quite good friends and stuff like that um and i can't remember if he did the first viola desmond book just before the rocky jones book that he did or after but they were very close together um 
and it was actually um, the 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 man who uh, was the academic, like the the f- first book that he did was a very academic um, kind of history of her, and then he did a much more general readership one um, that they coincided with the launch of the ten dollar bill, mm-hmm. um, and. I believe Viola's sister had participated quite a bit more in the second book than the first one, which was much more of a kind of an academic accounting of the incident and the responses, and, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and that guy was a professor at Cape Breton University. And um, my dad is quite good friends with the guy who at the time was running the publishing company there. And he kind of called my dad and said, I think this book is much more better suited for you guys than it would be for um, for us to do, because they were much more of a kind of a, a hardcore, you know, uh, university press, you know, uh, mm-hmm. Cape and folklore, stuff like that. Right. Um, yeah. So that was kind of how it came to him, which is pretty cool. I have to say, embarrassingly, and again, going back to our conversation before, but I don't know what's happening in our education system. But the fact that I knew the story of Rosa Parks, Eight Ways from Sunday, and I'd never heard a blink, you know, um, and partly on me, I suspect you guys knew the story um, when we were all in high school together. Um I never heard of it until my dad started talking to me about it when he first started represent, like presented the book. And I was like, how the mm-hmm. hell can it be that I've never heard this story? Um, yeah. And we've come to see very quickly how impactful the story clearly is. I mean, she's now literally on our money, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, when you think that nothing had really been talked about her um, in a printed sense, you know, uh, obviously mm-hmm. inside the community of Nova Scotia, this is not <laughs> news to anybody, but um it's pretty incredible. I mean, that's an incredible story for it to only have started to be coming to the real general um, consciousness in the last decade. Is quite yeah. something. So. Yeah, we were talking to uh, Walter Borden, uh, an older gentleman uh, in our community, and uh, I know Walter. Yeah, yeah, I used you to know Walter. He, he used to be quite good friends with my uh, buddy who worked at the um, the mall on Spring Garden across. Awesome. From now I can't remember the. Yeah, yeah, and Walter. Cool. I think he lived in the condos there, maybe. Maybe, cool. Mm-hmm. But he, um, uh, about Viola Desmond, he he mentioned that it's all about timing. It's timing, right? Um, I don't think the uh, the world was ready for that particular interaction back in. I think it was forty six that she nineteen forty six that she said no and wouldn't give up her seat. But ten years later, you know, when it happened again in the states, the world was ready for it. Yeah, fair. And, yeah, and and they embraced yeah. that that particular instance, and there was a jump off point. Yeah, know? yeah, that that created that civil rights where uh, everybody sort of came together to fight for it. Back then, not too many people in New Glasgow were going to be fighting for a black woman for sure. You know, no. Well, and sadly, as we've now come to learn, you know, I mean, we're talking sixty plus years later, and the same stuff is happening, right? Like mm. um, the whole thing that went down in Truro there over the last number of years, uh, I think I think it was Lynn Jones, if I'm not mistaken, was it not? Or it might have been Viola's sister. It was one or the other, but where like they're literally on their property and the cops come over and are, you know, giving them a hard time. And they did manage to force the, the, right. the city council of Truro to officially apologize to them for not being able to stand on their own property for looking mm-hmm. like criminals, right? In the eyes of the police, you know? Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we, you know, we had a jumping off point and a revolution of sorts, but at the end of the day, I have some real reservations about the actual change and 
even though there have been some obviously dramatic changes. We had a black president and we have a black female vice president at the moment. Those are things that were unthinkable 40 years ago, right? Um, but the reality, it feels like a lot of the time for me looking at it again, because it's not something I experience, um, it hasn't changed for people on a day-to-day basis in an awful lot of situations. Yeah, you know? very true. So, yeah. mm-hmm. the, um, and it's interesting because a, a lot of um, the flashpoints, like, like George Floyd was a flashpoint for Black Lives Matter. Um, a lot of the flashpoints that happen up here are actually ignored. Like uh, I, me and Jay have been talking about uh, the last one that I saw was uh, um, uh, Mensa, the the young man that uh, was killed by the the Brampton police. Oh, yeah, um, yeah. And with that situation, you know, the Canadian press they grabbed onto it. It's been a year later, and there's been an inquiry. And it's been found that um, the Brampton police, only one officer of the three that were there, talked to the inquiry. Because it's in Canada, if there's an internal inquiry, the police actually can say, I'm not talking to you. They can refuse to talk to their own investigators. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, 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 that's right. Yeah. So only one officer talked, and he told them everything that happened. And between their interaction with him on his own porch, two minutes passed and the, and the gentleman was dead. Right, yeah. So, like, but again, there's one story on the CBC and the story begins, mentally ill man. <laughs> you know, this poor guy obviously had a history of mental illness, but he's been defined by it mm-hmm. all of a sudden. In, inversely, when, the only time you hear about mentally ill white guys is after they've done the killing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know what I yeah. mean? Like, yeah. When, yeah. Like when a white guy gets killed by a cop, they would never lead with mentally ill white guy. You know no. what I mean? It's like, they're trying to frame that to justify what has happened, you know? And, mm-hmm. and again, inversely using it to defend white guys when they go out and do awful violent shit, because they must've been sick. You know, everyone else is a criminal by nature, but white guys are mentally ill when they do bad shit which drives mm-hmm. me bonkers to say the least. But. Yeah. It, um, it's disheartening. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, Derek, that's been going on here in Toronto for forever. Right. I mean, that interaction here uh, between people of color uh, across more than one nationality granted. Um, and the police is like, it's really almost desperate. I mean, we're talking after the George Floyd stuff had happened there was a man who was shot in the front door of his own apartment. I, my, like, I think he was like 67 or 68 year old grandfather, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and like the video shows him unarmed, right? And he may well have been um, having a, a mental health crisis at the time, but then you don't send someone with a gun to interact with someone having a mental health crisis. Right? Yeah. And I think we got to strip our systems down and rebuild them in terms of how we interact with the community. Um, sadly, the way that I think our world has gone with the stratification of class and so few people have so little and so many have so much, you're always going to have to have some sort of force that has guns and you know what I mean? Um, cause crime is only going to get increasingly worse if we can't bring the disparity gap down, I would argue, yeah. mm-hmm. but we just can't 
be having police officers acting as agents for mental health and having people dead as a result anymore. It has to stop, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That leads to an interesting uh, question. Uh, What's your take on defunding the police? Yeah, I mean, I haven't put a whole lot of thought into it, truthfully, and done enough research over the last number of months as I should do. Um, I think the idea of defunding ties into what I was talking about, because you're not talking about getting rid of, like, the, the idea that you abolish the police force, I don't think is feasible, because I think you need something, you know, they're Sadly, as I said, there's a lot of bad shit that goes on and someone's got to be out there controlling some of it or it would all get pretty lawless, I would think. But for me, it's not, I don't know if the idea is defund rather than redistribute the funds in terms of, you know, I I think that in the city of Toronto, where if I'm not mistaken, the budget for the police is a billion dollars. And yet we can't fund community health clinics and needle exchanges and things the way they need to be, you know, um, our public health system was decimated here just as we were about to enter into, you know, the largest pandemic in our lifetimes, largely for fiscal reasons, yet the police budget has always gone up and up and up. Um, so it has to be, it has to be heavily looked at. Um, and if defund means redeployment of those funds, then I'm all for it. If it means you're going to take half of that budget away from the cops and that half a billion dollars disappears, which is the way that I find governments like to do stuff. I'm not on board with that. That money needs to be put into the hands of people who are going to make effective change on the streets for people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, that's a good perspective. I agree. Yeah, I agree, I agree it, as well. Uh, there, there needs to be a risk uh, redistribution of those funds. Definitely. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I think it might be time that, you know, someone who is going to be armed and wandering around the streets with the ability to shoot somebody else, maybe some training. It's, it's time that, you know, a social worker shouldn't spend three times as long in social work school to be able to help a homeless person on the street than a cop does. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Nine months, I think is, I think it's nine months and you could be a police officer wandering around the streets of Toronto. Meanwhile, yeah. you know, I never did get my sociology degree because that thing was years. You know what I mean? Like, come on, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And and just the way, you know, just the way that they're trained to react to situations. You know, if there's any kind of like in the states, if there's any kind of fear for their life, they can shoot to kill. Well, know? if the interaction is between a black person. Because you start looking on YouTube, you can find some videos of white people doing some crazy shit and no one ends up shot. I watched a guy drive away from a police officer with an armed gun in his passenger seat the other day. It's nuts. Like nuts. He tells him, I'm leaving. And the cop is like, no, sir, no. And the guy drives off. (laughs) And this, this is a month after a guy gets shot in front of his children reaching for his driver's license, which is what you're supposed to do in a traffic stop. You know, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. it's mind blowing. Yeah. That, um, what, which amendment is it that you're, you're able to carry guns down the States? I forget what it is. But anyway, second, if I'm not, mis- not mistaken. Yeah. The second it, amendment. The, right. fir- the first is the right to free speech. And I think the second is the right to bear arms. Yeah. The right to bear arms, you know, yeah. I think when that was written, they were talking about muskets. <laughs> right. So you could shoot one guy and 10 minutes later. Lucky. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, well, they'll take the twelve minutes to reload. It, it's the same argument, you know, that keeps cropping up in Canada: long guns versus handguns, and that yeah. whole debate. You know, mm-hmm. one thing is designed to shoot animals for the purpose of eating, hopefully. The mm-hmm. other is designed to kill humans. Yeah. And for me, there's a clear distinction there. I'm not anti-gun. I think guns have a enormous importance in our existence if we're going to continue to eat animals and stuff like that. You know, yeah, I mean, true. they're very important. Uh, the concept that you're going to arm yourself for the purpose of either hunting or protect yourself from being hunted is the delusion I think some people have mm-hmm. with a gun of other humans is nuts to me. I mean, that's mm. damaged. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Well, this the, has been the, a... Sorry, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I was just going to add. There's a, 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 I'm not sure I thought I would be quoting Kathy Griffin here this afternoon, this evening. But <laughs> she, she tells this great joke about, and I'm sure it's bullshit, but it's a really funny joke. She's dating this Russian guy, and, you know, she's talking to him, and, you know, like, you know, what's the, what, so what do you think as a Russian is the most important of, you know, the American rights and freedoms? And he's like, well, the second. And she's like, well, really? You think the right to bear arms is more important than the right to free speech? And he's like, well, you know, if you've got a bigger gun, you can say whatever you want, was his kind of answer. <laughs> and that is, in fact, how the United States has now gone forward, it seems like, with some of their kind of um, ideology towards how they approach the world, right? It's no longer the voices of the people that are strong that, you know, are talking about doing things. It's, you know, I got the biggest gun and a nuclear bomb and away we go. Yeah. Strong arm, strong arm motherfuckers. Well, yeah, if, if if what you're saying is so true, like if, uh, you know, what happened there a week and a bit ago uh, at their capital, just uh, the video of that is just uh, amazing to see, like, even though there's there's video of the security guard or not security guards, the Capitol Police mm-hmm. literally taking barriers away and letting people rush opening the it up to the crowd. Yeah. 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 I, I it's dumbfounding. Dumbfounding. Yeah. So here for me, just a couple quick points on that. Like, I mean, I was very much raised kind of an anti-war kind of thing. Like, you know, I would say like my early kind of intervention or not what's the you know my my heavy kind of political stuff early on was very anti-nuke and anti-war and that Mm -hmm. sort of stuff right and we would always talk about the money that's getting spent on that sort of stuff and so since i was a kid this figure is some astronomical amount that they have spent on foreign defense the price tag just coming out of 9-11 is trillions upon trillions upon trillions upon trillions of dollars, right? All to protect from, you know, again, the scary dark people coming as part of the fucked up narrative there, sadly, I'm afraid to say. Um, all that money gets spent, but then this group of people who have been openly talking about doing this on the internet for weeks are allowed to march in. And so... I no longer will ever accept any arguments from people about where money is being spent. You you can't justify to me that you're going to go buy 19 more nuclear submarines to defend your nation mm. instead of feeding kids when you've allowed this to happen. Yeah. Then you're just a liar. Yeah. Yeah. In my yeah. estimation. Yeah. Yeah. You know the Canadian government is not perfect. Nowhere near perfect. But, you know, just universal health care. I don't know how the Americans are so opposed to it. Like they're the only developed nation in the world without some sort of universal health care. 
Well, and the fact that they had it and gave it away just because the guy who brought it was black, largely, from what I can tell, <laughs> yeah. is insane. Right? There like, is that, know, too. <laughs> like, voting yeah. against your own best interests at every turn, right? Like, yeah. this guy finally did something in that goddamn country, and they're pooching it. Mm. And it'll be real. I highly doubt Biden's going to be able to bring it back, because, of course, now, due to COVID, that'll be the excuse to never pay for anything again, right? Yeah, yeah so, true, true. Yeah, like, yeah. It's wild, yeah. you know? It's like they yeah. had it within their grasp. It wasn't perfect, but it was yeah. there, and they've pissed it away. You know, yeah, yeah. true. It's really disappointing, wow. man. It was like it was going to be the one real big, you know, change that Obama brought, and now it's yeah. not apparently. Yeah, yeah, it's been stripped away completely. Yeah, yeah. yeah it was. It was yeah. like, yeah, you're so right, man. Just like it was there. Grab onto it. But what? Yeah. What, Even like, if they get rid of everything else, Jay, right? Like, yeah. you know, they think turf everything else if you want, but just keep the healthcare and yeah. build from there, you know? Mm. Like, you want to play $300,000 for whatever, like, in a, you know, a long time stay in the States? Like, and most of the people that are going to the hospitals are poor. Like, yeah. it's, you know? And it's bankrupting families regularly. Oh, yeah. I yeah, uh, Just one last story. There, um, my daughter was... Uh, premature mm -hmm. um she was um 26 weeks oh dude that's she, she was scary. very premature yeah yeah she's wow. healthy she's healthy now she's like getting 90s on math tests and right and uh cackling and giggling on her phone every night and all that stuff <laughs> well, she's she's a normal 14 year old but she was she was born premature and um, I remember talking to the uh, the nurse that was taking care of her at the time, and we were just talking about the cost of her care. And Mount Sinai, Derek? Mount Sinai. Yeah, okay. Mount Sinai. And uh, we were talking about the cost of her care. And, um, and you know, my daughter was in the, the hospital for months. Months, man. Yeah. Well, so, at least until her due date, right? Yeah, until, exactly. Till her due right. date. She left a, a week before yeah, due date. That's 14 weeks. Yeah. yeah. Could you imagine? Wow. Like if we were in the States, there's people in the States right now that were in my situation that are making the determination, do I get into over a million dollars of debt or do I make the decision to pull all this away from my child? It's a decision that shouldn't be made. Yes. No, there should, be, there should be no pressure to have to make that sort of decision yeah. ever. Yeah. yeah, there's no decision. Yeah, yeah. That, this is uh this has been a great conversation, Lindsay. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, yeah, it's awesome, man. We we once this COVID thing's over, we gotta we gotta tip a tip a glass, man. Yeah, I'm very much looking forward to doing that, guys. And thank you very much for having me again. I was honored to be asked. To be very honest with you, yeah. I appreciate. So, in honor of what we used to do back uh in high school days was often to tip up a glass and the reason why um it's also a celebration is uh lindsey uh sharp an excellent guest you're officially uh part of season one history i want to say congrats derek. Guys. yeah derek congratulations man we did it thank you thank you You have been listening to Down Home. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. The song 
breaking new ground from the breakdown on a high plateau from the one down below to the future of the funk